Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each week to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from uh, Israel. Um, there's really only one place to start tonight, and that is with uh, yesterday's remarks, outrageous remarks by Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas in Berlin, of all places, in, uh, uh, at a, a public meeting with the Chancellor of Germany. Um, he, I would say, repeated, because it's actually been something he said many times, especially in Arabic over the years, um, uh, a, a demeaning, a trivialization, even appropriation of the Holocaust by uh, answering a question from a reporter, I believe, uh, that asked whether he was prepared to apologize or accept some responsibility for the murder of uh, Israeli athletes uh, at the uh, 1972 Munich Olympic Games. Uh, very famously, Israeli uh, athletes and their coaches were murdered in the Olympic Village by uh, Palestinian uh, terrorists uh, associated with the PLO. Um, and many people feel that Mahmoud Abbas, while not involved in the actual events himself, was uh, still uh, connected to it as uh, a leader of the PLO at the time. And he was asked whether he will take responsibility. It's, uh, it's uh, becoming quite an issue because it's 50 years since those games and uh, Germany want to have a memorial, and actually that's controversial because the uh, families of the athletes are boycotting that memorial, which is an embarrassment for the German government, obviously, because they feel, uh, the families feel that um, they haven't been properly compensated and hasn't been acknowledged for the failures of the German police at the time. They sort of stood in the periphery and let them, uh, as, as some would uh, suggest, let the murders happen without really, uh, you know, too much involvement. Um, so this question is very much on the mind of uh, German um, uh, journalists and uh, politicians. So the question was asked of Mahmoud Abbas, and he said, I can give you 50 catastrophes, 50 murders, 50 holocausts perpetrated uh, against the Palestinian people. And uh, as one can imagine, this caused a massive furore, uh, most uh, obviously in Germany itself. And there was actually quite a lot of attention in the German press and in uh, German political circles, the fact that the chancellor, who had earlier uh, dismissed the apartheid analogy, did not say anything, did not react in any way. There was an excuse that these were the last comments, so he had no time to react. And obviously afterwards put out, uh, you know, a condemnation, et cetera. But the comments were made. And they caused quite a reaction in Israel with condemnation, as one can imagine, from left to right, when it comes to the trivialization, the appropriation, the minimization of the Holocaust, as one can imagine, the uh, uh, politicians across the spectrum are very sensitive to it. It certainly was a massive own goal uh, for uh, Mahmoud Abbas. Um, not that too many people in Israel believe in him in any way. You don't find too many supporters uh, of Mahmoud Abbas, of the current PA leadership uh, in Israel. Uh, the only sort of coordination that's happening these days is secu security coordination. 
the allowance of uh, permits for workers, uh, some business coordination, taxes, obviously, Israel collects uh, uh, taxes on behalf of the uh, Palestinian Authority, um, but no one really believes in Mahmoud Abbas as, a, as a, someone who can deliver a peace deal, except for on the real extreme left. Um, what did happen behind the scenes after that is those who have had some relationship with him, again, it's mostly at the security level is uh, Defense Minister Benny Gantz and current Prime Minister and Foreign Minister, um, Yair Lapid. And what happened next was that uh, both of them sent messages to Abbas through their office that this was absolutely unacceptable. And they demanded an immediate apology and immediate retraction. It got to the point apparently where uh, Israeli teams were allowed to go over the retraction and apology by Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, obviously, he said he was misunderstood or he didn't mean that. He just talked about general crimes. Um, and he did say that the Holocaust was uh, the worst crime uh, of the last century or modern history, whatever he used. But of course, those who understand Mahmoud Abbas's background understand that he is known as Dr. Mahmoud Abbas only because he has a doctorate from, I believe, Moscow University, somewhere in the former Soviet Union. Uh, basically, his doctorate is on Zionist collusion with the Nazis during the Holocaust, where he uh, debates or denies central aspects of the Holocaust, including the number six million. He says maybe there were no more than 850,000 uh, Jews killed in the Holocaust. No one quite knows where he gets that number from. Uh, but basically, you know, his doctorate was based on uh, Holocaust uh, revisionism, if not uh, outright denial. And it seems that this is something that's permeated throughout his career. It permeates a lot of Palestinian leading officials through the media, et cetera. Of course, uh, Mahmoud Abbas's party, Fatah, put out a statement uh, claiming you know, he was the victim and he just said what was right, et cetera, et cetera. But this, if, if it was at all possible, puts him even further outside the circle of peace in the eyes of the Israeli public, which again, just presses into that, um, the fact that you know people ask why, uh, from abroad why why the Palestinian issue is not on the political agenda it's not on the election agenda because quite simply it's actions like this it's the incitement that continues all the time the rejectionism the uh, disbelief in any in the right of Jews to have any sovereignty in any land um, basically there's very very few people in Israel and it's shrinking well, certainly every day you know, from, from yesterday, who believe that the Palestinians are willing or able to come to a deal. So Israel basic, Israeli political elites understand this and understand that there's no point even engaging in it. There's no deal to be made. So the only cooperation or relationship is on the security coordination. So that's really what you know, many Israelis have been talking about. Uh, going back to the sort of political level where we had the long-awaited or not, uh, entry of uh, Gary Eisenkot into the political arena, a former chief of staff of the IDF, not one with uh, a tremendously interesting background, you know, not, not one who was remembered necessarily fondly or badly, um, but he was choosing between Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid's party, uh, and Yair Lapid's Yeshatid at one point thought that for sure he was going to join their list, and in the end, he decided to join Benny Gantz's list. And why is that significant? For, for a few reasons. First of all, uh, Gadi Eisenkot said many times that he wanted to join a party that had a chance to lead a government. 
Now, if you look at the numbers, you can argue there's no, you know, there's no comparison. Yes, Shatid are polling in the low 20s and Benny Gantz was uh, polling in the low teens, uh, I think 12, 13, something like that. Um, but uh, as, as I've said before, um, Benny Gantz probably does have a better chance of being uh, the leader of a future government. Again, it's a slim chance, but certainly a better chance because he would be more acceptable if Netanyahu does not get that all-important 61 uh, in November. Uh, it, it has been suggested that the ultra-Orthodox parties could then go across the aisle and offer to uh, Benny Gantz to become uh, the first in the rotation. Uh, we know before that there was a rotation between Benny Gantz and uh, Netanyahu, and Netanyahu came first, and there was no intention, uh, nor was there any result in uh, Benny Gantz ever becoming prime minister. But this time, there has been background deals or background discussions, at least, that uh, he would be first. And obviously, Benny Gantz, I'm sure, wouldn't be uh, naive enough to uh, agree to become second after what happened last time. So that's probably why he went to that party. Now, the name of the party is also significant by its lack of significance, I would say. It's, it, the party is called in Hebrew, Hamachne Haman Lechtiot. Now, you have in that party now, you have someone like Gidon Saar, uh, and Zevelkin and some others, some hard right um, uh, politicians, especially when it comes to the Palestinians, people you know who have long uh, advocated against giving up one inch of land to the Palestinians. And you have someone like Gadi Eisenkot who says that we you know we should get out of the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria as soon as possible. And you have other people who are some you know many people who are in the middle. And Benny Gantz is probably someone in the middle. So how do these politicians sit together? And and basically as I've stated before because unfortunately these are the elections where it's just there is no left there is no right there are no policies again there was a press conference to introduce Eisenkot where Benny Gantz and Gidon Saar the other member um, leading member of of this party all spoke not one of them gave a single policy issue not one of them gave a really distinct and concrete vision of what they're going to stand for and the party's name was Machane uh, Mamlachtiyot. Now, Mamlachtiyot is a very hard word to translate. Probably the closest I've seen is statesman-like. Um, and that basically means that they're the statesman-like camp. And what does that mean? That means that they are trying to say that they are you know, decent, upstanding, competent, um, responsible uh, politicians. Now, to my mind, as someone who works on elections and election campaigns, it's hardly a driver to the ballot box. You know, are you going to vote for someone just because they say they're statesmanlike? Uh, what's their vision? What's their policy? Are they left? Are they right on financial issues, on social issues, on religion and state issues? No one knows because, again, we have another party. And by the way, it's not just the newer parties. It's some of the older parties where you can point to a lot of divergence uh, on the issues. Um, and here you have a party, again, probably with more extremes than we've seen in any other party from, from left to right sitting together, basically saying to the public, vote for us simply because we are statesmanlike. Um, it, it just, it's, it's showing, uh, as, I've, as I've stated in the past, what these elections are about or really are not about. And they're not about policies. And granted, we still have a few more months to go before the elections. Uh, but don't forget, as I've said before, October is full of Jewish holidays. So a lot of uh, politicians and campaigners are sort of, you know, scrubbing a lot of that out because when, you know, the Jewish holidays are a time where, you know, politics will take a little bit of a backseat. Obviously, we're in the final few weeks, but still. 
So, you know, everything has been thrust forward a little bit, but again, it's just showing the lack of issues uh, ahead of these elections. On, 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 on a similar issue, uh, Victor Liebman's Yisrael Beitenu decided to launch their campaign. Again, I'm not quite sure why so early. And, and the interesting thing, again, if you want to look for these sort of, uh, you know, the, the, these, these signs, these signposts about what these elections are about, their main rallying call was stability. Avito Lehman said, vote for me for stability. Now, it's a hard case to make because he's ruled himself out of sitting with uh, Netanyahu, not the Likud. Uh, he's, he's quite specific about that, but also the ultra-Orthodox. Now, the ultra-Orthodox are extremely likely to be in any future government simply because they can't afford not to. Um, and they've, they're, 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 they've suffered being in the opposition. So Avito Lehman won't sit with the largest party as long as Netanyahu is leader and he is leader for the foreseeable future. And he won't sit with the two parties who are probably likely to be the backbone of any future government. So to run on stability, again, what does that mean? Is it a driver uh, for people to vote on? I'm not sure. I doubt it. And also, it, it's a hard case to make when you're ruling yourself out of most probable conceivable coalitions. Um, on the right side of the map, it's been uh, a quite an interesting week for Netanyahu. He's, he's having a bit of problems simply because the parties on his block um, are considering breaking up. Now, why is that important? Because at the moment, you know, in his block, he has the Likud, he has Shas, the Sephardic Ultra Orthodox Party, and he has United Torah Judaism, the Ashkenazi um, uh, uh, Ultra Orthodox Party, and the Religious Zionist Party. Now, let's start with the Religious Zionist Party. The Religious Zionist Party at this point is split into two. Batalo Smotrich, who is the leader of the Religious Zionists, is Remain that leader, but Itamar Benkvir, the controversial far right uh, part of that uh, party, has said he'll run separately. Um, why he's doing that, I believe in the end he won't run separately. He's trying to uh, play for uh, more of his people on the list of religious Zionists. According to all polls, he is too, his party is twice as popular as Basalo Smotrich's. Uh, Smotrich is uh, suggested to get four or five if he runs on his own, whereas Itamar Benkvir has been polling eight or nine. So Itamar Benkvir does have a strong hand, uh, but I believe at the end of the day they want to run together. It's also easier for Likud to stomach bringing religious Zionists into the government with Smotrich, who is, you know, uh, agreeable to people on the centre. Uh, then Benkvir on his own. And if Benkvir runs on his own, even if he gets four or five and Netanyahu needs that, it's going to be very hard then to bring someone else in like a Benny Gantz. So that's why it's important for Netanyahu for the two to run together. More importantly, uh, but not as finalized, again, I don't think that's necessarily finalized either, but there is talk of the United Torah Judaism, which is made up of two parties. Uh, for those who understand the ultra-Orthodox world, there's many different parts, but the Ashkenazi world is um, variously split up into the Hasidic and the Lithuanian or the non-Hasidic uh, uh, world. And they have sat sometimes comfortably, sometimes uncomfortably together. They have different worldviews. They have different priorities. Um, and don't forget in the Hasidic world, you have many different Hasidic uh, leaders and each one wants their representative and each one follows their rabbi, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there's talk, really strong talk, that the two elements will just not run together. Now, this is a party that at the moment uh, has seven seats, 
and is polling around that number six or seven. If they split, there's a good chance that one of those parties will not pass the electoral threshold. And that will be a big blow to Netanyahu, not just because the, ultra uh, the United Torah Judaism Party has usually been his strongest allies and usually the first party that he closes coalition with, but also if uh, one of the parties gets three seats, it does not pass the electoral threshold and those hundreds of thousands or whatever it is, uh, votes will get thrown away and give a greater chance for the other side um, to uh, potentially form a government. Uh, interestingly, there's a similar uh, discussion going on in, in the Arab joint list. One of the parties, Balad, is thinking of going on its own. Again, that could harm uh, the uh, Arab uh, joint list. They probably will pass without Balad, but perhaps Balad itself will not pass, and that will certainly damage them uh, and the Arab interest in the next uh, government. Finally, before we go to questions, we have to talk about the um, reinstatement of full diplomatic relations between Israel and Turkey. It's been, I think, over a decade since uh, since Israel's had um, full diplomatic relations. It started ostensibly with a flotilla, if anyone remembers, that came from Turkey uh, and was boarded by uh, Israeli special forces and prevented from reaching Gaza. Um, and over the years, President uh, Erdogan of Turkey has been a real thorn in the side of Israel, really bashing it at every opportunity, removing uh, its ambassador from, from Tel Aviv, et cetera, et cetera. But in the last year with the um, meetings, especially at the presidential level of Erdogan and President Herzog, relations are really getting back on track. Is, is that a, an about turn by Erdogan? Is he suddenly a lover of Israel? No, because of Turkey's increasing economic uh, and diplomatic isolation, and especially because of uh, the economic situation that's happening in Turkey, uh, Erdogan can no longer ignore Israel. Israel is a major player, especially since the Abraham Accords, even more so, let's say, and especially in the West and, and the US and Western Europe. So it, it's a calculated decision by President Erdogan that um, they will uh, reinstall diplomatic relations. There is talk of a full return of ambassadors and consul generals. No date has been set, but certainly it is a major uh, step uh, for the region. We used to say before Erdogan came to power that the Israel-Turkey alliance was the foundational stone for stability in the region. Uh, we're certainly not back to those days and we won't be back to those days uh, for the foreseeable future, but certainly um, this is a major diplomatic event that was released tonight. And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions. All right, thank you so much. The first question we have in is, uh, do you view this, from one of our viewers, uh, do you view this improved Israeli-Turkish Turkish relations as positive? I think it's certainly positive because to have uh, relations, to have flights going back, to have Israeli flights being able to land in Istanbul, to have economic relations, tourism, et cetera, can only benefit both countries because at the end of the day, you know, this, this will help people. This will help the economies of both countries. And it's important that um, Israel and Turkey, if they're not necessarily best friends, which they certainly are not, at least they're not the enemies that they have been um, in recent years. So I think this will certainly be viewed positively around the world. And it's certainly a positive step, but it's, it's, we're not where we were, as I, as I said at the end. Thank you so much. And... Um... Barack Korkmaz asks, is the Turkish-Israeli rapprochement 
uh, targeting Iranian nuclear program, the Iranian nuclear program? I mean, one of the one of the major episodes, which also showed that Turkey um, sort of understands its its role with Israel and its place in the region, was um, what was it a couple of months ago when Israeli tourists were being targeted by Iranian hit squads, um, and you know I, I think we talked about that when it happened, and it was it was you know a very difficult time. There were people being dragged uh, from markets by Israeli. Um, intelligence because there were Iranian hit squads waiting for them in their hotel rooms and things like this. I mean, real sort of James Bond stuff. Um, but the interesting thing here is that Turkey was working very, very hard to help Israel. Um, Israeli intelligence is, is you know, is, is very good. It's very strong. But to have the local domestic knowledge that the Turks were able to bring to the table and help Israel, I think, was probably a major needle uh, that moved the needle. And a message was sent during this whole episode to the Iranians, to the Iranian leadership. You don't do this on our territory. You don't target, uh, you know, our guests. Um, there's no love lost between the two countries. Uh, Turkey is certainly not a major leader uh, for or against the Iranian nuclear deal. I'm sure they uh, are not necessarily happy about it because they are, you know, rivals in the region with, uh, with the Shiite uh, um, uh, Islamic Republic. Um, but it's still Israel that's leading, um, you know, the sort of rejectionist camp against any return to the JCPOA, which does seem to be getting closer by the day. Thank you so much. Carrie Hillebrand asks, Turkey and Israel agreed to restore the full diplomatic relations, as we've been talking about. Uh, will Turkey distance itself from Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood? Uh, well, the Muslim Brotherhood, no. Uh, because that's, you know, a, a, an ally um, to the Erdogan uh, regime. But Hamas is definitely one of the issues which, uh, which has been discussed, and Hamas will certainly uh, be, uh, find a less friendly uh, presence uh, in Turkey, of, even it has in the last few months. And so Hamas uh, operatives or leaders have been uh, told to leave uh, Turkey, and that's certainly a big part of the ask from the Israeli side. Um, you know, the, the, the Turkish foreign minister, you know, had to, uh, but he came out with a, a statement that this will not dampen their support for the Palestinian cause, et cetera, et cetera, which, you know, Turkey have long champions and seen themselves as the leaders of the Palestinian cause in the, re the region. So uh, they, they, they had to come out with that. But as far as Hamas, uh, there's certainly been many steps taken by the Erdogan uh, uh, leadership in recent months, and I'm sure in the coming months uh, to distance themselves from Hamas as much as possible. Understood. Robert Larrick asks, isn't Russia and specifically Iranian Shia aggression and supremacy also a threat to Israel currently? Um, not currently, always. Uh, Shiite uh, uh, Iran is the biggest threat to Israel, not just to Israel, to the moderate Sunni regimes, to Saudi Arabia, to the UAE, you know, it, it shot rockets uh, recently, and its uh, proxies are shooting rockets at Saudi Arabia all the time. In Lebanon, they're a problem. In Iraq, they're a problem. In Syria, it's a problem. But you know, they, 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 uh, and also in the West in general, we 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 heard recently about attempts to assassinate John Bolton. We saw the attempt to assassinate Salman Rushdie. Uh, famously, he was under a fatwa by I think it was Ayatollah Khamenei. Um, so Iran isn't just a, a threat to Israel, it's a threat to pretty much the world, uh, but certainly Israel is most worried by uh, the Iranian 
nuclear uh, weapon uh, attempts to to reach uh, uh, nuclear weapons, um, and you know their their support for Islamic Jihad in the conflict uh, that lasted a week. Uh, what was that? A couple of weeks ago. Uh, their support for Hezbollah. I mean, yes, Iranian influence always negative is, is all around Israel pretty much all times. There's nothing current about it. It's uh, it's been going on for for many many years, and um, unfortunately, it'll probably continue. Thank you, Eric. Asks, do you think the Israeli public thinks Israel won the recent engagement against the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, or was the fact that it was a fringe group? Or the fact that a fringe group was able to launch over a thousand rockets in, at Israel indicate Israeli weakness? It's a debate. Uh, certainly, um, there is a debate. I think probably this had the clearest element of victory for Israel in any recent conflict. Probably because, as you said, it wasn't it wasn't against Hamas. I mean, Islamic Jihad are not a small fringe group, but it's certainly not on the level of Hamas. Certainly, with their uh, capabilities, their rocket capabilities are, are, are not Hamas. And in fact, Hamas was very angry um, at uh, Islamic Jihad for trying to launch uh, really uh, unsophisticated rockets at Tel Aviv, some of them falling short uh, in, in the Gaza Strip and killing many uh, Palestinians. Um, but Israel did take out the, the lion's share of, um, of the Islamic uh, uh, Jihad's military leadership in a way that it hasn't been able to do with Hamas. First of all, Hamas has a, a much wider uh, breadth and depth to it. Um, but it's certainly, you know, if, if you look at that alone, uh, it was certainly a victory uh, for Israel. Um, the fact that Islamic Jihad were able to shoot rockets, uh, no Israelis were killed. Um, you know, it's hard to say what exactly would constitute uh, uh, a victory for either side in that particular conflagration, but uh, certainly, uh, it was played out that Israel won that particular round against Islamic Jihad, and especially, maybe even diplomatically or politically, the fact that they were able to keep Hamas out and keep the level of condemnation down and achieve many, I don't know if most or all, of its war objectives means that probably Israel took that particular round. Thank you. And Jack Wasserman asks, uh, why are there no policies being articulated, yet the parties continue to proliferate in name and number? Because, uh, I mean, uh, this, this will probably take a good few hours to, to go into. But first of all, you know, it, it's about personalities more than policies. And that's true to a certain extent around the world. We're seeing that in many election cycles. Um, and we're certainly seeing it here. We have a leader or actually a former leader who you know, led the country for 13 years, um, ostracized a lot of his ideological allies who are now against him, not ideologically, but personally, politically. They believe his time has come. They believe he no longer puts the country first. He puts himself first. So they're prepared to sit with people who are not the same ideologically just to oust him. Um, and also, you know, there were, I'm sure they will, they will touch on issues. The cost of living is something which is discussed. Um, almost uh, almost every day. And I'm sure that will be a major issue as we go into it. But the issue of the Palestinians, as I said, is just nowhere to be seen because no one really believes that it's an issue, that it's something capable of being uh, solved. So, uh, you know, what, what, what policy issues can you really uh, state there? And, and finally, because we have so many strange bedfellows sitting together. So what really, um, what really unites them? I mean, we've had you know, we always go back to the fact that since 2009, 
the largest party in Israel has not writ a manifesto or a vision, um, which is quite remarkable. You know, most uh, political parties in democracies around the world write some sort of manifesto, have some sort of vision, have some sort of points and policies. And the fact that the largest party has refused to write one tells you a little bit about the fact that maybe they can't write it because there is nothing that unites them. So when a party like that, as they saw the United States, it's very easy, perhaps even, I would use the word acceptable, for people across the ideological spectrum to sit together uh, and say, you know, vote for us for other issues, whether they're stability or they're statesmanlike or their responsibility or the fact that they can form a government. And also the fact is the, the current government was so ideologically diverse, uh, we really, to a certain extent, uh, put the ideological rifts, the left and right, although everyone talks about left and right, no one's really talking about left and right uh, on issues or policy-based. Um, you know, the fact that Meretz was able to sit with Gidon Saar, with Victor Lieberman, um, Labour, uh, etc., cetera, uh, shows that perhaps ideologies are as less important at this point. I'm sure they'll come back. Ideologies will come back, policies will come back. But at this particular time, because of some of those issues I've mentioned and many more, um, I think we're going to have an elections more about personalities, more about sort of uh, promises, um, about being able to form a government, about being statesmanlike, about having stability, um, but not really about uh, issues themselves. All right, thank you so much. That brings us to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update us this mm -hmm. week. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Jonathan Tobin, assessing the latest round of anti-Zionism. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.